feel like I hear faint crickets. Yeah, I do too. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. They're there. Nice to have them back. Good morning and welcome to episode 287 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I'm Sam Miller, and having just come out of a tremendous yawn as he hit record, is <laughs> Ben Lindbergh. I'm in a tremendous, s- in my usual, a tremendous one. In my usual Sunday night state of nervous exhaustion post-breaking uh-huh. bad, so uh, I'm trying to keep it together here long enough to do the show. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. My, uh, what do you want to talk? Yeah. Yeah. What do you want to talk about, though? Uh, do you have something to talk about? Did you have something to say? I was going to say that my office smells like pickles because I'm making pickles in my office. Huh. But that's not wow. not about baseball. Is this the uh, this has become the Portlandia <laughs> podcast? Yeah, I just I figure you pay a premium for the pickle, so I might as well <laughs> I might as well just get the cucumber. Yeah, you must be spending <laughs> you must be spending three times as much per pickle. Yeah, for sure. Uh-huh. It's pretty simple. You get a cucumber, you put some garlic in there, some peppercorns, and. Uh, some kosher salt, and you just let it sit there for a few days, and it's a pickle. <laughs> so this is the first time I've ever tried it, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. But it's like that. What What if you let it go too long? What happens? Uh, I don't know. I like them half sour, so I assume if I let it go too long, it'll be full, or it'll just like become a dill or something, and I won't want it anymore. I don't know. If it's exposed to air, it will it will rot. So you have to how many <laughs> how many it. pickles? Yeah, how many pickles are you in the habit of eating? Uh, I I eat about as many as you put in front of me. Really, I'm making six right now. <laughs> so this is the first time I've ever made my own. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, I went through a phase when I was about 23 of clipping coupons. Uh huh. And uh, I I really I, I knew that coupons are basically a scam to get you to spend money you wouldn't otherwise spend. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was very conscientious of that. So I would basically only buy things where I was making profit. And uh, one of the things that you could always really uh, just murder the grocery stores on was pickles. If you mm-hmm. waited for you know the the uh, you know the, the double coupon days or whatever. And so I always had pickles. And uh, I probably kept those pickles for seven or eight years because who, whoever eats a pickle, <laughs> like just, well, just for no reason, who eats a pickle? Speak for yourself. I used to. Jason, Jason Budzikowski is dying of excitement right now that we're talking about pickles. <laughs> when he listens to this in two months. I used to, yeah, my mom used to make me cut, cut coupons and file them in this big coupon book that was like, it was sorted by, by type, of, type of product, I believe. Uh, and there was just over overflowing coupon book, and the the coupons usually expired before they were used. But it was one of my weekly my weekly duties. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, end end of that. Okay. okay. Uh, did you see Joey Vado's flip? No. Okay. Can I send it to you, and you can watch it without making sound? Uh, probably. All right. Well, if you can do that while we talk, I feel like we we often differ on on flips we talked about victor martinez's flip at first and we talked about the iglesias scoop flip uh we both agreed that iglesias was incredible but we were sharply divided on victor martinez's flip um and at the time you 
you you said that the Mark Burley flip was the gold standard in flips, um, and I saw a comp between this Vado flip and that Burley flip, and I'm curious to see what you think. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I'm right now stuck in a commercial about bad internet speed. <laughs> okay. Well, if at some point you you get to see it, uh, all right, let me know. I might go. I might go looking for an alternate. Yeah. But yeah, okay. And we'll talk about it before the end of the show. Okay. And congratulations to to Vladimir Ballantin, who broke the single season home run record in Japan. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago, so I figured we should. Do just... you think he listens to this or something? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, but he he hit two in one game and and blew by the record. So congratulations uh, to him. Again, you're congrats. You say congratulations <laughs> to a person. <laughs> yeah. Are you expecting this message to get to him? Not really. Uh, <laughs> can you just say we're happy to have seen it? Uh, sure. I'm not that happy. I'm watching the flip. Okay. It's a it's a nice flip. I I let me see. Let me see. Uh, so underwhelmed I flips. You've never seen a flip that you liked except for Burley. No, that was a good one. That was a solid. That was that was much better than Martinez. The thing about the flips is it's just I continue to go back to this the idea that you know you basically the flipping the ball is easy, right? Flipping it accurately is difficult. So but you let's that say that every flip is just random. Yeah, I figure if you're going to miss left 10 times and miss right 10 times that at least once in those 20 you're going to end up getting it square in the middle. And so what we're just seeing is, you know, basically the the lucky the lucky few who, who, you know, by random, by randomness, managed to get it in the middle. That, mm-hmm. uh, there's nothing particularly. I, I'd like to see them. I'd like to see Vado repeat this play multiple times, <laughs> and like Burley did. Burley has repeated the flip multiple times. I, I believe that Burley's flip is his true talent. It's, it's a real. That's an. That's part of his skill set. Mm-hmm. With Vado right now, it's a, it's a small sample. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, what's what's your topic? Um, this Morosi piece about the Royals. Ah, okay. Um, and I figured that we could maybe talk about Vladimir Guerrero and Todd Helton. Okay. Uh, can I go first? Yes. So I, I, I read this piece that John Paul Morosi wrote for Fox Sports Today about the Royals and why, um, well, the lead is, if you're a fan of an American League contender, please consider this unsolicited advice. Root against the Kansas City Royals. Root very, very hard. And his premise is that the Royals are going to be the dominant team in the postseason. Um, and I, my response—I mean, I, I reacted very—I I would say I reacted strongly toward it. Yes. Um, not because it's um, not not because of Morosi's piece specifically, or 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 Morosi by any means, but just. This is the type of article that we're going to start seeing a lot of in the next few weeks, mm-hmm. and I just can't take them. I, I, I really have a, a hard time dealing with these articles, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to talk through it and, and figure out or just sort of uh, identify the things that drive me crazy. But and, and also I have a question, a conversation starter, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but the basic idea is that um, – uh, once we get into the postseason, the dominant story of baseball is these short, you know, these sm- uh, short series, and writers have to essentially uh, act as though they have some insight into the short series, and so they start mm-hmm. figuring out. And, and I think with sincerity, I think they they do they start figuring out which team they think is going to be best for those short series. So we're going to hear all sorts of 
uh, explanations for why a certain team is is a better uh, playoff team than than all the other teams. Mm-hmm. And so Morosi just got there first, basically with with uh, with this column, and so that's why I'm talking about it. But uh, the basic flaw is that it's just this: in, you have to narrativize something that probably either do, isn't really real. Or that you have absolutely no way of knowing. I mean, if, if it, you, it's way too complicated to actually do and you know to, to figure out, um, and yet you you know you you believe it, you, and so you you have to sort of narrativize it and create a narrative around it. And this article, this piece that Morosi writes, just ha- you can see how much he has to strain mm-hmm. to create the narrative. And so I'm just gonna to go through a few passages. Um, the I guess his his thesis statement is. The Royals are built for the playoffs as much as any other AL team. And I, I should note that the, the way that I found out about this is that um, his, his tweet actually said something like, uh, well, I'll tell you exactly what it said. Uh, his tweet, again, commercial about slow internet right now. <laughs> uh, his tweet was, your team's season might be doomed if the Royals make playoffs. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, he could be, he could be pretty, pretty, pretty provocative on, on Twitter from time to time. Yeah, so um, the, 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 this is a nut, nut graph. The Royals are built for the playoffs as much as any other AL team. Name a characteristic shared by recent October darlings. They have it. So already we have that they're built for the playoffs as much as any other team. So it started out with your team is doomed because the Royals are coming. Mm-hmm. And now it's just, well, they're, well, they're as good as anybody. <laughs> um, name a characteristic shared by recent October darlings. As though like recent October darlings is a thing mm-hmm. more 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 relevant than all the other October darlings right, ever. Right. And and what, what even is an October darling necessarily? And then I'm going to skip those characteristics because we're going to go through them later. But um, we see uh, after naming some of these characteristics, he says all of those traits were on display Saturday when the weather, 65 degrees at first pitch, and atmosphere sellout of 41,800 made it seem as if the postseason had arrived already. Well, I mean, this was look. They it was sixty five degrees at first pitch. That's not like the weather. If you're going to start citing the weather, I want forty five mm-hmm. and like 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 uh, you know you can see the players' breath. And at the sellout of forty one thousand eight hundred, it was in Detroit. It wasn't in Kansas City. If it had been in Kansas City and there'd been a sellout, I could see that being significant. But it was in Detroit. It was the thirteenth highest attendance of the year for Detroit. So you're you know you're trying to you're sort of picking out these details and 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 turning them into evidence when, you know, they're, they're really not evidence in any sort of way. Mm-hmm. He describes the way that the game ended. The Royals won that game one to nothing. I, I believe they threw the runner out at home uh, to end the game. It was like a, not a walk-off, but, you know, they ended the game with a, with a put-out at home. And so he writes, out, game over, narrative on. Yeah. This is a, <laughs> th- yeah, so, I mean, explicit acknowledgement. Yes, I thought that was curious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's almost meta-analysis of his own column. Yeah. Um, this was a huge win for us, Yo said. We had to have this win tonight. We haven't had a ball game all year where we had to win. Tonight was it. We, italicized, had to win this ball game. So then they lost today. So if they had lost yesterday and won today, that wouldn't have mattered because yesterday was a must win. So then clearly today must have been a must win too, if, right? And mm-hmm. so they lost. So does that end? I, I mean, I don't think that Morosi is saying, well, now it's over. Um, 
so the idea of a must-win is always false narrative unless you're in an elimination game. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many respects, the Royals have proven their mettle already. Saturday's win clinched the season series against Detroit, 10-8. and eight. I mean, they lost days. So they ended up 10-9 and nine against Detroit. Like, that doesn't seem like significant <laughs> evidence to me. That, no. I mean, clearly, they, they have a winning record. They're going to have winning records against some teams, but like they're one in four against the A's. So can the A's rest easy knowing that they're going to crush the Royals? Probably not. If if they make the playoffs and like, let's say they, they end up beating the, the Rays out for the final playoff spot, they're 20 and 22 against playoff teams. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? That's not, that's not evidence. That's just a little, they've played 19 times and they won 10 of them. It's mm-hmm. not that big a deal. So, uh, so then finally, I'm going to get to the, the gist of his argument is the characteristics shared by recent October darlings that they have. And I want to know from you, I want you to basically rank these characteristics by significance. So uh, if you think that they are a zero for significance in picking who's going to do best, mm-hmm. then they would be at the bottom. If you think that they're like a 10, they'd be at the top. So there's six, and I want you to rank them. So if you can keep them in your head. Uh, hot at the right time, check. At 35 and 21, they have the AL's best record after the All-Star break. Okay, so hot at the right time. Okay. Uh, lockdown, lockdown bullpen, check. Mm-hmm. They have the AL's lowest bullpen ERA and a closer, who Tigers manager Jim Leland said may be the league's best. So lockdown bullpen. Mm-hmm. Number three, formidable rotation, which I love because like, he's not going to tell us it's a great rotation. It's, it's formidable mm-hmm. only like they share with last year's october darlings a formidable rotation <laughs> of james shields is a true ace Irvin santana leads the royals starters with a 3-2-3 era which is like kind of a weird like it's a close it's a it's a closed system somebody's gonna lead their starters mm-hmm. with a with an era you, that's not you can't <laughs> cite that he leads his team's era is evidence to be fair era is good to be fair i mean they have the lowest DRA in the American League, I guess, do, as a yeah. team. Uh, that, that's true. Which but is partially anyway, bullpen, but yeah, okay, so yeah. What what's the next? That's true. However, it's a three point two three ERA in a pitcher's park. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, and Jeremy Guthrie is supplying his customary two hundred innings. Sorry, right. airtight <laughs> defense check, uh, and they've permitted only three point eight runs per game, fewest in the AL, uh, which is not the same thing as an airtight defense, but mm-hmm. okay. Athleticism on the basis, mm. on the bases, check, led by the fleet Ger- Ger- Gerard Dyson. They topped the majors with 141 stolen bases. And charisma, mm. check. The team's young, everyday players came through the minors together, lost in the majors together, and are now relishing their first chance to play meaningful September baseball. So can you rank those six things? Hot at the right time, lockdown bullpen, formidable rotation, airtight defense, athleticism on the bases, and charisma, for significance. Uh, so you want me to rig each of them from zero to ten, or relative to each other? Relative to each other, top to bottom, and you can tell me what the top one is on a one to ten, and what the bottom one is on a one to ten, <laughs> just so we basically know what the window is that you're you're within. All right. Uh, I'll put I'll put lockdown bullpen first. Mm-hmm. Um, then I guess. Yeah. <laughs> See, are we are we talking about things that confer a, an advantage above and beyond how good the team is? I mean, yes, yes, oh yes, because the twist, the twist at the end of this is I'm going to then ask you what overall quality of the team is. Right. Okay. And because because they are 76 and 70 or something like that, 76 and 71 or yeah. 78 and 70, something like that, uh, which seems to be 
kind of a significant detail. The mm-hmm. fact that they are like the eighth best team in the league mm-hmm. seems relevant <laughs> it does, to me. It does. And the main thing, and I finally, after thinking about this, and I'll, I, I know I'm interrupting you, but after thinking about this all day, I realized what kills me about these pieces is that they act like all these uh, descriptions of how a team wins are more significant than whether the team wins. They, yeah. they, 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 it, to some degree, I remember this with the Shane Victorino free agency, uh, free agent signing when everybody was like ripping that deal from the Red Sox perspective. We might have even ripped it. I think we did. Yeah, we did. And and one of the things was that people would go, "Oh, well, he can't hit lefties," mm-hmm. and like look at how bad he is against lefties. But I mean, like you know his WAR. So like, what do you care <laughs> if he hits lefties? Like that's embedded. Like you've already. You've, you've started the conversation with the war, mm-hmm. and now you're, like, adding things that are already within the, the war, right? And mm-hmm. so with the Royals, like, obviously, if they make the playoffs, they're going to be a good team. All the playoff teams are good teams. They, if they make it, they're going to displace another good team that has embedded within its wins all these good characteristics. Mm-hmm. They're not, like the, like, the specifics are just so much less important than, like, the fact that, you know, they're either good or they're not. So anyway... Uh, so, so yes, above and beyond. I'm only I'm only interested in the above and beyond factor. Okay, with the caveat that I don't know how much I believe any of these things confer that much of an advantage above and beyond. Um, I'll say lockdown bullpen. I'll say formidable rotation, and then defense, mm-hmm. and then athleticism on the bases. I guess which. Athleticism, I'm taking to mean that they are actually good at running the bases, which I think is the case for the Royals. Not They're decent, at least. Um, I think I care so little about hot at the right time that I'm actually going to put charisma above that. Oh, wow. <laughs> charisma second to last. <laughs> that is how, how little I care about how a team finishes the regular season. And that reminds me of an article I saw last week because... And it's the same sort of thing you're talking about. There was an article by Doug Miller at MLB.com called September Heat Can Keep Clubs Warm in October. Uh, and, you know, it was exactly what you'd think, that that finishing strong is, is a key to winning in the playoffs and how you finish matters. And the author looked at the last 10 World Series winners and how they had played in the final month. Mm-hmm. as as justification for this theory and and even even looking at those 10 and there was no real explanation of why we should look at only 10 as opposed to all of them but even looking at those 10 it it, it didn't strike me as that strong an argument I mean, a lot of the ones that he mentioned played well in September but he also mentioned where September ranked in their in their months of the season. And for a lot of them, it was like, well, it was their third best month of the season. It was their second best. It was their fourth best. Uh, there were a couple teams that didn't play well in September. And, and then at the end, it was just like, well, I proved that. And yeah, and no, <laughs> I mean, like, you, you, you essentially cannot possibly win this column. So just there is no, almost virtually no reason to try to write this column. It cannot be won. We we. We staked our friggin' reputation on this idea for years, and then, like, after we re, you know, after we had a few more years of data, it was like, oh, well, no, I guess that didn't work out, right? right. Yeah. So I, I tweeted out Jay Jaffe's BP article from I don't know a couple years ago, where he, 
you know, took a really in-depth look at this and didn't just look at the last 10 teams or whatever. He looked at, you know, how every team finished and how they did in every round. And, and he basically concluded that there might be some slight advantage, like a, a team that's, you know, at its healthiest or something at the end of the season. That's probably a good thing. But on the whole, it was not predictive really in any way. Um, yeah. And yet articles continue to be written about it. And there's no there's no burden of proof for, for you to write one of these articles. It's just you just state it as if it's a fact and you provide some circumstantial evidence to support your 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 preconceived notion about it. And then that's it. You're done with your column uh, and no one really calls you on it or your editor doesn't say, hey, how about you, you know, do a more rigorous look at this. It's just, okay, that's... Or write about Koji Uehara instead. <laughs> just, I mean, everybody who's writing this column right now, just stop and write about Koji Uehara. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I will say that, I will say that I actually, in this particular case, mm-hmm. I might actually say hot at the right time is my number one hmm. in, in a good way. Just ba- because he didn't, he didn't say hot at the right time. They're 19 and seven in the last two weeks or something, or three weeks. He, it, it's the last two plus months and, you know, going by the idea that, you know, teams, uh, you know, going by the old Billy Bean thing that we talked about once where you, you know, you, you have the first few months to build the team you want. Mm -hmm. And so you might make the case that the Royals, um, right now are not the same team that the Royals early in the season were, that this is, that the, you know, the last 70 games of the season might be, you know, somewhat more telling than the first uh, 80 yeah. or 90 were. Although, yeah, uh, right. It's not, yeah, it's not like the Dodgers. It's though, not a, where like, it's not, they got a true. bunch of injured guys back or, right. I mean, they're kind of the same people for the most part. Um, I, you know, maybe, yeah, some basically of the, that's true. maybe some of the young hitters took a step forward or something and yeah. Hosmer seems to be fixed and that is significant, I guess. But, um, yeah. anyway, so, so I rank those things and, yeah, I, I mean, the the record or the run differential or whatever measure of team strength you want to look at seems to me to be by far more important than any any individual facet of how a team wins. Yeah, I'm with you. All right. And yet we're still going to do playoff previews <laughs> in a couple of weeks. We will be doing... Yeah, I just... I hope that we just... I hope that we're... We, we use this experience to inform the way we approach it. It's always, it's hard to do because people want to read those things and we want to give them what they want to read. And, and it's, you know, it's fun to read previews of series that mean something. But at the end, I don't know how much value it adds other than just doing a projection based on team strength. I mean, you can... You can do a deep dive on the rosters and say, well, this team has a bunch of left-handed hitters that are important to their offense, and this other team has some shutdown lefties who'll come in and neutralize them, and you can kind of find those things, or I don't know, maybe one team isn't good at holding runners and the other team is good at running, or you can kind of find those things. We talked about this not too long ago, whether whether we think there's really any any advantage that a team has against any any other particular team above and beyond team strength and eh, I, something probably, but not a whole lot. But we'll 
we'll still write those things probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's still there's a you, there's a reason we're watching mm-hmm. these things. I mean, you you just don't you don't write about it as though like you have more insight into the game than you know the collective wisdom of the planet. Mm-hmm. All right, were you ready to move on? Please. Okay, so this weekend uh, there were there were news about uh, Vladimir Guerrero officially retired, uh, and Todd Helton officially announced that he will retire after this season. So we don't do a whole lot of Hall of Fame talk on this show, but I figured we could do a little bit with these guys because they're both kind of interesting cases. And we actually got a a listener email about Helton a couple weeks ago, so I will just read that now. Uh, Scott emailed us and said, I'll admit personal bias since I've been a fan of the Rockies since day one. However, this is not intended to be a leading question. I'm just looking for an expert opinion, but I'll take yours as a substitute. Ouch. Scott, shots. Sick burn. Uh, What are Todd Helton's chances of making the Hall of Fame? Obviously, his best years were pre-humidor, and he sharply declined in the Coors Light age. How much of the decline is due to injuries, and how much due to the humidor is an interesting question. For years, I've assumed that he'd fall short of Cooperstown and didn't give it much shot. Uh, but then he talks about his career war is around the, the 60 war, which is often bandied about as the cutoff for the Hall of Fame. So he wants to know if he has a shot. Um, and I guess we can talk about whether he has a shot and whether we think he should get in, because those are often two different questions. Uh, do you have a strong opinion either way about Helton? No, I mean, he's... He uh, he's right at the uh, right at the place where you can't have a strong opinion. Yeah, the he's, only, he's I mean, right. He's the he's the textbook borderline guy, really. Well, either he is or Vlad is. They, they, yeah, you know, in their own ways, they both kind of are. Yes. Um, so I, I I would say I, I I think that I for for no real good reason at this point I think I lean no on Helton and wouldn't be sad if he got in, and I think I lean yes on Vlad and wouldn't be sad if he got left out. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's I think it's very likely Vlad makes it and it's f- probably fairly unlikely that Helton does. I agree. Uh, and I think the stats uh, I mean we have we have Guerrero at 63 warp, we have Helton at 53 warp, uh, which is a pretty big difference. I'm not sure if the other other... Reference is 60 Reference has it at 61 for Helton and 59 for Vlad. Okay. So that's very close. Um which is interesting because Helton's uh, defensive stats at BP are actually very good. Um, Park adjustments? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, so I wanted to read something that Bill James wrote recently, as I was saying last week. He always he always gets me started thinking about things. Um, so someone asked him about whether Helton is a Hall of Fame guy in one of his recent mailbags. And Bill James said, I think Helton is a Hall of Famer, yes, his numbers are so good that it's disorienting. My son Ruben <laughs> asked me the same question, and I told him a story I remember reading about Dick Stewart when I was maybe 14 years old. Stewart hit 66 home runs for Lincoln in the Western Association in 1956, didn't make the majors for a couple of years after that. Stewart said that when some young player in the Pirate system would hit 35 homers and drive in 100 runs, the club would get all excited about him. But then when he hit 66 homers and drove in 158 runs, the numbers were so fantastic that they didn't know what to do with them, so they just wrote them off. That's Helton. His numbers at his best are so fantastic that people don't know what to do with them, so they just ignore them. 
but my interpretation of his numbers is that he is above the line, which is an interesting way to, to think about it because the the cores thing is, is I mean, you have to, to deal with that head on, whether you're a, a yes for Helton or no for Helton. That is kind of the defining aspect of his candidacy, I guess, as well as the fact that both he and Guerrero uh, were very high peak people. I think their their peaks were clearly Hall of Fame level, uh, mm-hmm. but they were essentially done. I mean, just looking at, uh, I mean, Vlad's last four win season, he was 32, and Helton was, well, it, charitably, if you round up, 33. So both of them had, had injury issues. Uh, Guerrero DH'd a lot. Uh, Helton had the back troubles. So they were both kind of done as, as star-level guys in their early 30s, and then Helton had a, a longer decline phase, and Guerrero just kind of disappeared. Um, what were you going to say? I don't. I don't remember. Oh, <laughs> uh, something about course. Were you going to talk about course? The I don't. I don't know what I was going to. I. I do know what I was going to say, but I don't know that it fits your flow. So if you want to keep going, keep eh. going. Mine. Mine can be tucked in at the yeah, end. I don't know if I have a flow, but Helton. Uh, if you look at his like top ten years or his ten year peak, sort of he. He was. I mean, it wasn't like he was anemic on the road. Like he. He couldn't hit it. He was still a 300, 400, 500 guy on the road, I think, for a 10-year period. And, of course, that was kind of, uh, you know, the peak offense era. So you 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 have to adjust those numbers downward slightly because of that. But I don't, to you're me— exa- And you're exaggerating slightly on that as well. Uh, I think it was close. Uh, really? I, I think so. I think so. Um let me, I'll see if it looks like yeah yeah I mean he has like a five year period where he's above that and then he has you know three years where he's a little below it right after and yeah so maybe if you tuck maybe if you tucked in you might be able to get that in there yeah sure yeah uh, and he he was a, he was phenomenal on the road I mean he has a couple of just insane like in two thousand on the road <laughs> in two thousand on the road he hit three fifty three four forty one six thirty three <laughs> which is good like that's a good that's a good line yeah pretty good uh, on the road uh the thing about cores that is and bill james's description uh, or the word that he used uh disorienting mm-hmm. really does apply to to cores in that era because we know i mean we basically have ways of neutralizing for ballpark that we you know more or less take as you know fairly reliable and fairly accurate but nobody knows what to do with cores and so people just they don't even it feels like people don't even they just look right past the uh you know the ops plus type things and Mm -hmm. just you know assume that there's something wacky i mean you hear this all the time with you know like with carlos gonzalez too where they point out well his splits between home and away are you know much bigger than they would normally be you know in uh you know in another park or even at you know even for most players in course field but you know sometimes that happens sometimes mm-hmm. you get splits that that especially over a couple of years that that veer wildly in one direction it doesn't necessarily mean that the that the the park is doing more work than than your math tells you it is mm-hmm. but i think people i think people think that course field did more work than we're giving it credit for with helton yeah and and there's probably 
going to be some tendency to to just throw out those stats because it was cores and the crazy cores era and you look at the numbers and they're huge and 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 people don't we've talked about before how people don't really like to adjust they don't really like to do hypothetical things with stats they just want to know what actually happened um but they're very aware of you know peak cores that there was something strange going on there so yeah i wonder whether there will be a tendency to just kind of throw it out um yeah yeah i think there probably will be probably more than is is fair uh from let's see no that's not gonna work um I'm trying to look something up. Mm. You can, as you can tell, it's not going all that well. Um, do you want to hear my favorite Todd Helton fun fact? Sure. You've read this once before because I I wrote it in an essay. I'm not an essay. In an essay. <laughs> an essay. Uh, in an article that you edited. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I was going through Miguel Cabrera's Triple Crown year mm-hmm. um, and looking at you know how it would have held up in other years if he'd just taken those numbers. Uh, Todd Helton in 2001, and obviously, I mean, I know the, the ballpark and the era are huge, so this is not a pure fun fact at all. But in 2001, he actually had a higher batting average and a higher home run total and a higher RBI total than Cabrera did in his Triple Crown year. So it <laughs> wouldn't have just knocked him out in one or two categories, but all three. And the previous year, 2000, he beat him in two and was only two home runs behind in 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 the third. And of course, like I said, Coors is a big difference, but he had a 163 OPS plus mm-hmm. that year, and, and Cabrera had a 164 OPS plus in his year. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of uh, it puts it in perspective. I feel like he is John Olrood, basically. From 2000 to 2004, he had the 10th best road OPS mm. in baseball. So does that which way does that point you? To I me, think... that's a perfect place for it to land because it does not. It it is it is exactly the border between Hall of Famer and not <laughs> Hall of Famer. If you ask me, if you're a first baseman and your true talent is the tenth best hitter in baseball, mm-hmm. you are like right on the cusp. I don't know what to do with you. I think it helps. He's, you think he's be, so he's he's uh, he's ahead of Vlad by ten points. He's ahead of Tommy, although Tommy was you know. A different age mm-hmm. so that might not be fair but uh he's ahead of chipper jones uh but uh, obviously a different position mm-hmm. but you know he's behind jim edmonds in mm-hmm. the same period he's behind lance berkman in the same period he's behind jason giambi in the same period uh he's behind sammy sosa in the same period he's behind sheffield in the same period and sheffield's the only one of those guys really with a shot mm-hmm. and a couple of those guys have real position and defense advantages over him too mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I think he's I think he's a almost a perfect match for John Olrud, really. If you look at, um, I mean, we have we have Helton at fifty three point two warp. We have Olrud at fifty two point three warp. Uh, so they're within a win there. And if you look at, um, if you look at their their neutralized stats at B, at uh, Baseball Reference, they have uh, they have Helton at. 292-387 batting average OBP. They have Olrud at 291-393. So essentially the same. And then Helton has about a 30-point edge in slugging. Um, mm-hmm. 
and I don't know. They were, I guess, they're both good defensive first basemen. I feel like maybe Ulrud was better, but um, yeah. But I feel like they're very, they're very comparable players. Um, and Ulrud just fell right off the ballot. He got no interest whatsoever, which was a shame because he was a shame. one of my favorites. Um, mm-hmm. And Helton, I think, will will last a little longer than that. But uh, I don't see it really happening. He seems he's clearly below like Bagwell and Tomei. And I feel like maybe you can make a case that he's he's roughly in the same range as like McGuire, Palmero, but without the PED stuff, which maybe will help him. Um, but eh, I, I guess I'd lean towards. No, I wouldn't be upset at all if he got in, but I don't think that he will get in. Um, and then Guerrero, why is it that Guerrero feels like a stronger case, do you think? Hardware. Well, yeah. hardware and, be, and because there was, uh, there, well, there was nothing nothing polluting his insane greatness yeah. for those first, like, seven seven years. I mm-hmm. mean, I guess, I guess if we had had, probably if we had had it, actually, to be fair, if we'd had advanced defensive metrics at the time and we relied on them uh probably there would have been a lot of people bad mouthing him when he was winning his mvp awards for mm-hmm. being only a six or a seven win player mm-hmm. in years when there were you know better players so uh i don't know i mean he if if what did he he won one mvp award and he had mm-hmm. like like five top five finishes or something yeah uh yeah he won in 2004 uh and then he had a yeah, he had a he had a fourth place, he had a third place, another third place, a sixth place. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's I mean it's it's not a good thing that MVP awards dictate how I feel about Hall of Famers, mm-hmm. but I do. It, I mean, it affects me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess I I, I yeah. I, even though I know that those votes don't really do a very good job, I still feel like it captures something about the zeitgeist that sticks with me. He's also just kind of a more memorable player. I mean, he he's he was fun. <laughs> he's kind of more fun than Todd Helton. I like Todd Helton, but mm-hmm. he, he didn't hit crazy pitches two feet outside the strike zone and not wear batting gloves, and he was just kind of dependable Todd Helton. Um, yeah. Another Vlad, player. Sh- Vlad, Vlad should be in any Hall of Fame that he's eligible for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another player who announced that he will retire after 2013, Mark Katze. Mm-hmm. It's finally over. Uh-huh. I'm sort of sad because Katze has been like the he's still playing guy for the last like six four, or seven years. Five years, <laughs> like yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm sort of sad that that's coming to an end. We had a didn't we have a Todd Helton anecdote? I mean not Todd, a Mark Katze anecdote on this show once. Uh, did we? I don't know. We, so, we talked about him in the Clubhouse Leaders episode. Um, I'm, no, I'm, I'm pretty. I don't want to repeat it, so I'm not going to tell it. It's, <laughs> there is a Mark Kotze anecdote that I that I have uh, about my own life, but I'm gonna not. Re- I'm not going to risk repeating it. I'm not going to risk repeating it like Mark Kotze has repeated his sub replacement play for the last nine years. Do you know what Mark Kotze's career earnings are? Uh, I, you know, I'm going to answer that in a second. But I were. I was just talking to Jason the other day about how. Billy Bean managed to get Joey Devine for Mark Kotze. Like, Mark Kotze was coming off a 57 OPS plus, and Joey Devine was like, you know, future closer all over him. Mm-hmm. And somehow, 
somehow he pulled that trade off. Like that's underrated best bean move ever, even though Divine pitched like 35 innings mm-hmm. for the A's. Uh, Mark Kotze's career earnings. Um, I'm going to guess that he had about a 60-year peak where he was making about eight per, and he's probably made like a million per for the last seven years. And before that, before free agency, he was making like you know a million per. So I'm going to guess um, 68. A little high, 50.75. Okay. Uh, yeah, he peaked at 8 million. You were right about that, but he was only right there for a year. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. That's uh, one of my favorite games. The guess how much <laughs> yeah. this player made. We should do an entire episode. We should do an entire episode, <laughs> and we should solicit requests yeah. for, for who we should make each other guess. <laughs> That's a good one. The first one we did was was Ty Wigginton, right? And you were you were impressed that he had made almost $25 uh, million. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, maybe we'll do that. Mm-hmm. All right. In the meantime, though, send in emails, podcast at baseballperspectus.com for the Wednesday show, and uh, we'll be back with a normal show tomorrow.